And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, in traditional times, all hell broke loose, but it was kind of confined to these hours. These days, if you look around the world, it's, uh, well, it's no longer confined. This evening's program here in the Great American Southwest, we're going to be talking to an old friend of the show, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh, and we're going to be considering with a lot of intriguing evidence, I mean really good supporting evidence, including some that I have dug up that I don't know whether uh, Dr. Wickrama Singh has seen or not, that indicates that when all is said and done, this thing, this this global pandemic, this, this virus, this incredibly tiny micron-sized virus which is causing all kinds of geopolitical problems for people all over the planet, may not have originated from Wuhan at all. It may not be uh, terrestrial at all. Now, we're going to get into all that, but before we do, before we bring uh, Dr. Rick Singh on, let me give you some very important high points this morning and this evening and this afternoon, again, depending upon where you are. If you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, that's our homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com, click on uh, tonight's banner for uh, uh, Saturday, April 11th, you know, um, literally one day before Easter. Click on that banner, that will take you to the guest page, and then what you want to do is up under the banner on that page, you want to click on fast links to Richard's items that will take you down to my radio with pictures uh, uh, material. Item number one, we, we touched on this a couple, three weeks ago. <clears throat> the, the idea that a lot of people are dying from this virus because they have to be put on ventilators and there's a real shortage of ventilators caused me to kind of wonder why couldn't we bring back the 1950s polio-era iron lung? And I did some research, uh, including some of my colleagues like Ron uh, Gerbrun, and I did a lot of background looking at uh, how they were invented, you know, who first used them, um, what epidemics they were initially used in. It was primarily in the polio era in the 40s and 50s, but What's really interesting is the technology of the, of the old iron lung is exactly the opposite of the technology of the modern ventilator. Besides being infernally complicated with plus 200 parts and computer feedback loops and all of this very high-tech, very uh, temperamental technology, the iron lung was the basis of simplicity. It basically was a steel tube and you would slide the patient into the tube on a bed, you'd seal the end, the patient's head would stick out, there'd be a neck dam around the neck to keep the air inside separated from the air outside, and then a bellows operated by a, by a, by a pump, by a motor, would basically breathe for the patient. It would raise and lower by a few pounds per square inch the pressure inside the tube, and when you reduce the pressure, the outside air would go in through the patient's mouth and nose fill the lungs, inflate the lungs, and then the pressure in the tube, in the steel tube, in the iron lung would be increased. Air would be forced out as the pressure, you know, collapsed the, uh, the lung cavity. And so this machine, very simply, breathed for thousands upon thousands of thousands of polio victims who uh, in, in those years could not breathe on their own because their chest muscles had been paralyzed by, by the virus. In a backup situation, when uh, hospitals lost power or floors lost power, there was a provision with a, with a lever for nurses to literally hand crank the bellows so they could maintain the rhythm through human input even if the uh, power went out. Now, of course, you could build in you know battery backups, lithium ion, you could have computer switching, you'd have computer feedback loops that would sense like pressure in the lungs and you know other parameters of the patient much like the modern ventilator but it would be incredibly simpler 
It could be mass-produced by people here in the United States like Elon Musk or General Motors or Ford who are <clears throat> turning some of their factories to making ventilators and they're promising in the next few months something like tens of thousands. Well, it turns out that a few days after I went on the air uh, and talked about this all over the world, a British group of engineers, academics, and doctors got together, formed a team, and have created the modern variant of the old-fashioned negative pressure iron lung. And if you go to item number one, uh, under my items there, coronavirus reinvented iron lung technology could help save the NHS, that's the National Health Service in Britain, says experts. So click on that and you'll read a fascinating story. Apparently they're under trials now in I think six hospitals around Britain and this could be a major breakthrough, not the least of which, and I'm going to get to that when we get to another story further down the list, but not the least of which is that this technique, this technology, which is exactly the opposite of the modern ventilator, which basically forces air or oxygen into the lungs like inflating a tire, brute force technique, even though it's monitored by a computer, it turns out that this could be damaging the lungs of a lot of these extraordinarily ill COVID-19 patients, and so they die of secondary complications, not just of the virus itself. Uh, there have been a lot of heart failures. Well, positive pressure ventilators create pressures on the uh, uh, cardiac system, and this alternative, according to the British doctors, would increase the cardiac function, that's the efficiency, by about 25% compared to the standard modern ventilator. So that to me represents a potential real breakthrough and the uh, British uh, engineers who designed this with their doctors are freely giving the patents away, the diagrams, the plans, they're sending them obviously via the internet all over the world for anyone to copy and duplicate and replicate and mass. So this could be a major breakthrough in the short term, dealing with critically ill patients. Now, if you look at item number two, um, the, uh, the, the, the British say that the cost of this compared to a standard modern ventilator, which is something like 30 to 50,000 US dollars, that they can make this in Britain for about 1200 bucks. And that would be an extraordinary development economically. Well, there turned out a few days ago to be a doctor uh, Charles Robertson in uh, Mississippi at the Medical Education Center there in Jackson who has invented an even cheaper version out of what he says are off-the-shelf components including a garden hose, a lamp timer, and a couple of electronic valves to make the whole thing work. And he was able to go to Home Depot and Lowe's and his team put together almost 200 of these in a day or two and they cost about a hundred bucks. So there's incredible MacGyver-like um, creativity going on in the face of this massive uh, failure to have enough backup systems in case we ever had a pandemic and that's a whole other discussion and we'll save that for another show. However, if you go to item number three there's a story there that came out a couple days ago, which I've been sending around to our people and uh, we're posting it tonight so you can see it all over the world. There is a serious rethinking about the possibility that doctors in the mainstream medical community all over the planet are using ventilators for these critical ill COVID-19 patients the wrong way. That in fact, a lot of the deaths and the odds are that if you go on a ventilator, um, your chances of coming off it are about now 50-50, which are horrible statistics. They want to get that way up there, and and they're, they've been wondering, looking at x-rays and all that, whether the lungs are so damaged now that using a positive pressure ventilator actually is fl inflicting more harm on the patient, the cardiac issues you know, being somewhat separate, than not. So that's where this British technology, uh, if it was exported all over the planet, 
could be very helpful because negative pressure is a lot less intrusive than, you know, slamming a plastic tube down someone's throat. And apparently, when they're intubated that way, they have to be knocked out. They have to be put under sedation. Uh, they obviously are unconscious. They can't communicate. And they're just lying there with this machine pumping air in out of their lungs or oxygen. And again, there might be a really radical different way, which is to treat not the 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 oxygen deprivation directly by pumping air in, but using anti-inflammatories, cortical steroids and and some other techniques to reduce the inflammation so the lungs that are damaged by the virus have a chance to recover while they're on minimum exterior ventilation. These are, I believe, I got some word this morning from one of our sources at the Elmhurst Hospital there in New York, and they're having remarkable success trans, you know, moving to this other approach. So in the coming days, we're going to see whether this, this um, you know, change produces a much better set of outcomes for the most critically ill patients. Item number four. Again, these are all in the in the in nature of treatment as opposed to prevention or stopping the virus itself. Item number four, there is a doctor, Dr. Jacob Glanville, whose team in a lab have been working for many years since the SARS uh, epidemics of some years ago to develop artificially created vaccines that are not vaccines, they're really antibody treatments. Because when you get a disease, um, your body reacts to it. If you survive it, when the disease is over and you're well again, in your blood there are antibodies which, if you're exposed to that disease again, that virus, the antibodies will recognize it and attack it voraciously and get rid of it before it infects the rest of you. And that's how vaccinations um, work in a, in a smaller scale because a vaccination is literally a miniature simulation of the full-fledged disease. Well, what these guys are doing is they're creating, using genetic engineering modeled on the uh, uh, SARS-CoV-1 um, uh, virus, which seems to be the predecessor to uh, uh, COVID-2, which causes COVID-19. They're, they're using a technique to clone lots and lots of antibodies, synthetic antibodies, which then could be injected into patients, giving them a temporary artificial immune system where the antibodies would scavenge the virus entering the patient and they would uh, improve and ultimately you know, walk out of the hospital. Uh, this could be dramatically um, uh, life-saving because you wouldn't be using mechanical respirators and all of the innovation techniques and the other drugs that are now required. You would simply give well people and sick people an injection of these artificial antibodies and that way you could develop herd immunity through mass scaling of this technology and it would allow people to no longer have to distance from each other. They could go back to work, restaurants could open, factories, you know, resume. It could be a real fundamental change and so I want you to keep a close eye on this development because this sounds to me like the kind of 21st century technology that uh, we should be looking. And again, what's so interesting to me is these things never happen in the lull between these periods of mass infection. And they're only spurred when there is an instant desperate need because suddenly there's a crisis. Well, in, in this sense, the crisis could be long-term very positive because, of course, this kind of genetic engineering for artificial antibodies could be used, if it works, in all kinds of future epidemics or pandemics, and it would definitely save an awful lot of people who, unfortunately, now uh, are not capable of being saved. Item number five, since we're going to be discussing a potential extraterrestrial origin of this nasty little virus. I thought it would be interesting to put up a story this evening about Comet Atlas. Is anybody out there aware that for the last year astronomers have been tracking a comet coming in from the outer solar system with a period roughly six, seven thousand years 
The orbit trace seems to be mimicking a very bright comet from the 1840s, so the astronomer types are assuming that this might be a fragment of a fragmentation event when it rounded the sun the last time we saw the parent body. And there's some news, which you can see on item number five, that although the projections were this could be a become a spectacular comet in about a month toward the end of May when it comes closest to the Earth and whips around the sun at about 22, 23 million miles, it appears now from current observations in the last couple, three nights that this object might be disintegrating. You might want to watch this because if it doesn't disintegrate, if it actually proceeds to perihelion the way it was originally projected, I mean, in a matter of a few days, it increased in brightness in the outer solar system by something like 4,000 times, which was gave, what gave astronomers ideas that it might become another truly visually spectacular comet toward the end of May. Well, now those predictions and projections are being recast because if it's disintegrating, and it, it, it really shouldn't because it's still around the orbit of Mars on its way into the inner solar system, but if it's disintegrating, then as comets many, many, many times do, and I've had personal experience with several that did that, like Kohotek many years ago, um, visually it will not be spectacular at all. But as we're going to talk to Dr. Rick Ramasinghe in a few minutes, what in his model is the role of comets in seeding the inner solar system with viruses and bacteria. That's one of the things we're going to be talking about this evening. Finally, item number six. Under the news of the virus and China and Wuhan and all the, you know, controversies going on around this all over the planet, NASA made a very curious announcement in November, just a few months ago. In fact, I think it was November 19th, and that's story number six. The Curiosity rover, which has a um, uh, sample analysis technology on board, which has been analyzing the atmosphere of Mars, analyzing, analyzing soil samples, etc., as they've been trundling along through this 100-mile-wide crater on Mars called Gale Crater. Over the last several years, they've been able to get long-term seasonal data across every Martian year for the last several years. Now, a Martian year is about two Earth years. And what they've noticed, and they published before, is there is methane, excess methane, in the Martian atmosphere. And methane on Earth is primarily produced by living organisms, microorganisms primarily, but uh, cows have been indicted as well. Even we emit methane at times. But they have not been able to pin down, because I guess they don't have the isotope data, whether the um, methane is biological or abiological. In other words, produced by something living, respiring, or a natural process involving serpentine, a, a mineral, and, and water, and heat, and that kind of thing. Well, they've got another mystery. They've now found that the oxygen levels uh, Mars' atmosphere has a very tiny amount of oxygen. It's primarily the atmosphere is CO2, over 95%, I think, with the other 5%, you know, between noble gases and carbon monoxide and nitrogen and oxygen. The question, of course, has been, well, where's this free oxygen coming from? Now the mystery is, why is the oxygen varying? Why is it, in fact, going up and down? And the most recent data shows it's going up and down in synchronization with the rising and falling methane. And sometimes it's suddenly disappearing below the methane curve. And the NASA scientists in, in this story coming out of NASA, which is item number six, are saying in public they are totally mystified. Well, I'm going to run this by our guest this morning and see if he has come to potentially the same tentative conclusion that I have, but we're going to save that for a little later in the evening. Dr. Chandra Wickramasinghe is an internationally acclaimed astronomer and one of the foremost pioneers of modern astrobiology. Chandra is famous for his pioneering studies on the carbonaceous nature of cosmic dust 
and the prevalence of extraterrestrial life in interstellar space, in the galaxy, and, as you'll hear, maybe in the solar system. Dr. Wickrama Singh is recipient of several international awards and honorary doctorates and was a former fellow of Jesus College, Cambridge, and a professor at Cardiff University for over 40 years. So without further ado, Chandra, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you. Nice being here again. Well, it's really cool to have you. I, I, I didn't know whether you'd be so busy you wouldn't have time, but um, before we get into the subject of, of this evening, which is, is there a real set of scientific data buttressing the idea that this virus has come from outer space, why don't we, for all our new listeners since you were last on the show, which I think was about a year ago, why don't we kind of do a recap as to your background and how you got into this extraordinary research, which is basically looking at interstellar materials as carriers of biological uh, organisms. Yeah, well, it started in the 1960s, late 1960s, and by the early 1970s, astronomers were discovering large quantities of organic molecules in the space between stars. So this was the, the moment at which I began to wonder whether the organic molecules that are being discovered in space, which started off fairly simple, they were formaldehyde, for instance, and a few simple hydrocarbons, whether these molecules could be generated by biology itself. Now, the conventional wisdom, of course, was that there, was a, a lot of, there were a lot of processes that were purely chemical, uh, that could be producing these uh, molecules in space. But when I really went through all the uh, the data and the analysis of how that could happen in producing such vast quantities of organics, not just trivial quantities, but enormous quantities, something like one in every three carbon atoms in space had to be in the form of a complex organic molecule. Oh, my and God. Yeah, it's a huge amount, and at that that moment, so so this would be a major, major force in the in the economics in the uh, dynamics of the galaxy itself. Well, it's a major, it's a, certainly ma a major feature in the evolution of the galaxy, in the evolution of stars, and so on, and I think in the evolution of, on the origin and the dispersal of life. So, what if the question I began to ask is what if the organic molecules that were getting more and more complex as the years went on, what if these molecules were actually the degradation products of biology itself? And oh. it's Hang on one second. <laughs> let me ask, let me ask yeah. this question. You're talking about looking with telescopes deep into interstellar space in the galaxy, interstellar clouds, you know, between stars, where stars form, that kind of thing. Yes. But but this is light years, thousands, you know, tens of thousands of light years beyond the solar system, but it's all via spectroscopic, telescopic observation, right? Yeah, that's that was the first uh, mode of attack of this problem because we didn't have any other. And um, so with the remote sensing and the telescopic observations that we had in the early, by the early 1980s, we were able to predict that if these particles, the dust particles, vast quantities of this interstellar dust were actually bacteria and viruses, then we should expect a certain type of infrared heat emission pattern, heat absorption pattern that could be observed from astronomy, from using telescopes. We made that prediction, and months after that prediction was published, there were spectra obtained of the furthest source of infrared light, infrared radiation from the galaxy, and the match to bacteria was absolutely 100% perfect. Uh, now, you make a prediction, you have an outrageous, perhaps an outrageous theory, <laughs> you make a prediction, and the prediction is uh, fulfilled to that kind of level of precision. And it was at this moment in time that I thought this was it. Uh, what else could there be that would explain a whole lot of uh, mysterious, baffling data? And then at that point also, we began, I began, my colleague and I began to think that uh, we should look at how the conventional pundits, the biologists, have regarded life on Earth. 
how do they, how do they reckon life starts on the earth? And then we began to look at that question and the literature on that, and um, uh, it, it was a horrific revelation. The standard theory is that there was a primordial soup on the earth of organics, and that uh, life developed uh, by some sort of unknown. Myst even myst mystical processes, the chemistry that was even unknown. And um, so that was where we stood in terms of understanding the beginnings of life. And the more one delved into the nature of life at a microbial level, at a molecular level, the more convinced I and my collaborator, the late Sir Fred, Fred Hoyle, became that the beginnings of life on a small planet like the Earth in a mythical, in a hypothetical primordial soup is just really out of the question. Life at a molecular level is so exceedingly complex that we reckon that it took the entire universe, the whole, all the resources of all the stars, maybe in a large part of the universe to get this whole living system started. Didn't, didn't, once... didn't Freeman Dyson do some work some years ago and he basically said that in his analysis, life on Earth could not be the result of a random process because literally the universe was not long enough for that to have had any major effect? Absolutely, absolutely. He, he written, he's written a couple of essays on this, and I think he was firmly convinced that the standard theory and the standard uh, ideas of life originating on the Earth uh, is, is utterly and basically flawed. But, I mean, he didn't publish very much on that because he was more concerned with his uh, um, discoveries in physics and fundamental physics and so on. So um, so that that was where it stood. And there were lots of other people also who uh, began to uh, to look at the, the biological data that was available, um, I mean, including Francis Crick, I think, at some point. He reckoned that the... DNA was uh, of such a enormous informational content that it may have been artificially brought to Earth by an intelligent uh, source. Mm. So this was uh, directed panspermia. Exactly. I was just going to get there, Neil. But I mean, we can we persevered. We considered uh, the the simpler option that life is already imprinted in the in the fabric of the universe in the form of dust and interstellar dust, uh, these particles of dust, um, spores and viruses. So would, would the origin source of the, since the model for interstellar dust is it's basically uh, that which is not already existing in the galaxy, coming off red giants and supergiants in their cool outer atmospheres, and that may be the primary source, is it the idea that life itself in that nursery around ancient aging stars before they, you know, cast loose their outer envelopes, that that's where this transition between simple atoms and molecules into complex organics takes place? Uh, well, no, I think the, 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 the templates, the bacterial genomes that uh, essentially take on the organics and the, the inorganics uh, material and the soups, and it's like putting a bacterium into a nutrient medium. You, right. you already have uh, a single bacterium or a small batch of bacterium, bacteria, viruses from a, a, a much earlier phase in the universe. Uh, and then these get into the regions where stars form and planets form, and they multiply. Okay, and hold it there. Uh, We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Wickrama Singh, Chandra Wickrama Singh from Britain probably the world's foremost authority, authority, I'll learn how to speak properly someday, in extraterrestrial biological materials in interstellar space. We shall return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hudland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight. My guest this morning is Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh. We're discussing exobiology and the idea that in the last 30, 40 years, astronomical observations of deep, deep space, I mean really deep, tens of thousands of light years away, interstellar clouds circling the galaxy in gorgeous spiral arms, you know, brilliant blue stars winking into existence, living transiently. In the midst of all that, when you look at one of these Hubble images of a spiral galaxy, what you're seeing in those gorgeous spiral arms is really incomparable numbers of tiny bacteria and viruses coating interstellar dust fragments, or in many cases being the interstellar dust fragments, basically depicting a living galaxy in every one of those spectacular photographs of billions and billions of galaxies across the universe. Did I kind of get that right, Chandra? Yeah, I think you got it dead right. I think it's a universe that is teeming with life. And the life that you see in the form of the, the dark clouds, the beautiful structures of clouds that you see in our galaxy and in external galaxies these are the building blocks of all of the larger life that we see including ourselves so all the genetic heritage that makes up you and me and all the plants and animals on our planet really came from fragments of genes that are splattered right through interstellar, interstellar space right through the universe in fact and all that happened on the Earth was that these bits and pieces were delivered to the Earth via comets. I think comets and uh, cometary-type objects are the most likely deliverers of these materials to planets like the Earth. And so this happened right through from the beginning when the first life appeared, which we now know to be something like 4.2 billion years ago, the oldest evidence of life is uh, in the rocks that are exposed in Australia. Uh, and it was at a time when the oldest evidence of microbial life is at a time when we know for sure that the Earth was being simply pounded with comet and asteroid impacts. So it is these impacts then that brought the first life to the Earth, first bacterial life to the Earth, but it did not stop there. We've had recurrent episodes and continuously as well as in, in batches of uh, impacts on the earth that br brought life, uh, brought bacteria and viruses that kept on adding to the genomes of life against which, of course, Darwinian uh, evolution took place. But the evolution that took place was against the backdrop of cosmically derived and cosmically prevalent viruses, bacteria, bringing new um, genetic material, bringing new body plans, bringing new possibilities, and sometimes bringing lethal diseases. Hmm. Let, me, let me go back to this question of the origin, because in the model you're living out here, if every spiral galaxy, and I presume ellipticals have dust that we can't really 
as readily detect, but in every galaxy we're looking at, if interstellar space is loaded with organic, complex, organized molecular systems, i.e., you know, living, you know, templates, where did that all come from? I think that's a question that we would perhaps never be able to answer in our lifetime because it is far too complex and it's uh, maybe beyond the capacities of our, of our sort of cranial possibilities at the moment. Uh, perhaps that, that is so, but I think what I, know, what I can say for sure is that all of the evidence points to life at a very, very complex level being distributed almost to the most remote galaxies. And we see evidence of that even in galaxies that have redshifts of three or four, which means that it's very, very early in the universe. You're getting signs, chemical spectroscopic signs of life already being there, pretty much the way that it is here in our own Milky Way system. So I think the the the... the the uh, the bacteria and viruses and so on that made up all of us, essentially, um, throughout the last uh, four billion years, those are distributed right through the universe. And so, whenever they get together, they would form, they would make different forms of life, of course, but they wouldn't be that different, fundamentally, from the life that we see. Here yeah, because obviously if, if life doesn't evolve on an individual planet orbiting an individual star separated by light years from the nearest neighbor, so you have separate nurseries for independent evolution, if it all ultimately wafts down on newborn planets from interstellar space, from the interstellar clouds, then you're going to have a basic template universe-wide, which is the DNA that we think we kind of begin to understand right is of the dna that we that we find on earth in yeah that will be everywhere i mean we are used to thinking of the biosphere of the earth as starting somewhere maybe 10 feet below the earth and ending sort of uh, 20 meters above the earth mm. that that is totally bogus now i think we've got to regard the biosphere of the Earth is extending all the way to the remotest corners of the universe. It's a cosmic biosphere. Chandra, this is a stunning, stunning, outrageous paradigm shift in terms of everything that scientists have claimed for the last 30, 40 years in the exobiology field that they think they know. Well, I think they know nothing. I mean, you mentioned. Uh, you, uh, uh, sorry, I feel, I'm sorry to be rude, but you mentioned about the uh, the uh, oxygen and the the seasonal variations of oxygen and methane on Mars, and that is a clear indication of biology. That's what I. I'm glad you said it before I did because yeah. I didn't want to leap. But as soon uh, as I saw this, I sent it around to the colleagues in our research group, and I said, "NASA's discovered life on Mars. They're just too chicken yet." to admit it, and when you read that article, that paper, that press release coming out of NASA, they're actually desperately asking the public to, to, sub to, mid to submit ideas for what this could happen. I mean, you know the, the one of the chief NASA guys, Atrey at the University of Michigan, I believe. Yes. He yes. comes off in this, in this press release like the dumbest guy on the block, and he's not. Yeah, he, yeah. He's brilliant. I can, I can. I think they are play acting. Yes, it's, they are. It's a big, big play act. You know, a couple of years ago, there was a comet that was discovered, a comet called Lovejoy. This is the name, the name of the comet. I remember. And that, and that comet was spewing out uh, methyl alcohol and oxygen at a tremendous rate. And uh, nobody could explain what is happening. I mean, this is clearly fermentation. It's like a, a brewery, brewery inside that. There are bacteria that is making the methane and, uh, and making the, um, the alcohol. Have you looked so, at all the complex organics from the European S emission to um, 67P? Absolutely. It's a veritable absolutely. biological soup. It's a biological soup. And again... They do not dare mention, or in public at least, the uh, obvious conclusion that this is biological. 
we have studied. I mean, I, I was one of the Rosetta scientists at the beginning. I didn't get uh, uh, take p much of a part of on that because I and my colleagues had suggested that there be a, that there should have a life detection experiment at the cost of some twenty thousand dollars put on that. Uh, Rosetta mission, which uh, they rejected. They thought it was crazy to even look for life on oh. uh, on, on the comet, so that, that didn't go. So, and I didn't take any further part in this, but I know exactly what's happened. I'm, I think they've made fantastic measurements. It was a very successful mission, and every bit of it uh, that I have analyzed is 100% consistent with active biology uh, taking place right now in that comet. So comets are sort of living cauldrons of life, bacteria, viruses, and so on. And we are living on the Earth in, in the midst of a huge amount of this stuff that uh, we get every day. Hmm. Well, I think this NASA you know, press release, which we're going to talk about a lot more tonight. Um, I'm sorry, uh, in, in, in the next couple of shows, I'm going to do some... You know, I'm going to invite certain people on to discuss this because if NASA really is doing an Emily Dickinson, remember our famous poet Emily Dickinson, yes, Chandra? Yes, yes. You know, yes. Her, her great line, tell all the truth, but tell it slant? Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what NASA's doing. That's what they've been doing for a long time. And I think, I mean, uh, yeah, you're coming to the story of the COVID and uh, pathogens and so on. Maybe we shouldn't... Uh, uh, jump the gun, but I mean, what they should have been doing is to sample the outer outer stratosphere for incoming pathogens, incoming bacteria and viruses, uh, having known for sure that, uh, that there is this stuff really very high up in the uh, in the stratosphere from the nineteen in the nineteen sixties before the space projects uh, internationally, not only in America but in Russia, really got started. There were rockets that were sent through the atmosphere, balloons that were sent through the atmosphere to, to collect material and to look for microorganisms. And every experiment turned out to be positive. They found my microorganisms up to heights of 80-odd uh, 80 kilometers. And uh, suddenly, that entire program came to a halt. And the guy who was involved in it, uh, he's no longer with us now, but uh, he was a very prominent scientist. He came and told me that, the, that this project was stopped because it was getting too embarrassing. The space pro program would have been in jeopardy if it was uh, shown that uh, the upper atmosphere was full of microorganisms. So that's the, that whole thing stopped there. But in 2001, uh, together with the group of Indian colleagues and in the, uh, the Indian Space Research Organization, I uh, collaborated with, uh, with these guys and we sent up balloons to 41 kilometers and brought back uh, microorganisms, sometimes uh, a few new microorganisms. Uh, and so there's a huge amount of this stuff coming down every single day. And uh, it is amazing, I think, that there hasn't been a, uh, a sort of collective effort of all the space agencies to monitor the stratosphere for incoming pathogens because if they had done so maybe they would have found viruses that are threatening brought it down analyzed it in time well this or, sounds like something right out of that 1960s film the andromeda strain yeah very very similar yeah yeah it's a rerun of that yeah so okay, let me let's let's move a little logically here. That we started out, you started out looking at, you know, you know, imagery, spectroscopy of deep interstellar clouds. You found the signatures. You said there's got to be lots of life, you know, giving us these signatures out there floating between the stars. And then in the '60s, you began actually sampling the upper stratosphere and the lower regions of the, I guess you call it the mesosphere. Um, well, no, what? I didn't do that. I, I, this was before I came on the scene. Even this, this, this it was being done by a group of, uh, in fact, NASA scientists. They had a project that lasted for about uh, two years, and and they are still published as NASA, NASA uh, reports. So they were finding organisms and so on. But I think the reason that they were able to to sort of discontinue that and, 
and to ignore these findings was because at that time it was uh, almost impossible to assert that they were not contaminants. The laboratory techniques, the sterilization techniques ah. that were available were probably not the best. But now we have much better techniques and uh, sort of gene sequencing uh, possibilities. We can do in situ uh, sequencing of all the genomes of all the bacteria and viruses that uh, could be collected at, say, 40, 50 kilometers. So that could be done, and it could be done with rel relatively little cost. Uh, and I think it will be a huge advantage to uh, humanity. I, I'm, I'm reminded of my friend Arthur C. Clarke, who told me that uh, the dinosaurs became extinct because they did not have a space guard program. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if they had a space guard program, they would have seen that uh, uh, comet or asteroid coming and they could have done something about it. Wow. I mean, this, this paints an extraordinary picture that the solar system and the other stars we can see in the night sky, and then if you use telescopes, all the ones you see with telescopes, they're all swimming in a sea, literally, of distributed life. Yeah, I think that's that's the only rational way to explain the data, in my view. Well, of course, the, the majority conventional viewpoint would still be that what I'm interpreting as biology is just a fortuitous coincidence of a whole lot of non-living organic material uh, coming together in exactly the right proportions and mimicking the behavior of microorganisms. I think that that's really, really um, a desperate move to maintain an orthodox point of view against so, all the odds. So we're kind of poised <clears throat> at a Copernican or Galilean moment because with all this data accumulating that upstairs is teeming with life in various forms, microbial forms, yeah. it's only a matter of time until the dam breaks, but what's going to cause it to break? Could it be this current uh, crisis, this worldwide, you know, uh, panic and fear and geopolitical, you know, concatenation into all kinds of terrestrial systems? Is this going to be, you know, the old cliche, the straw that breaks the camel's back? Well, I tend to think that something like that would be needed to change the uh, really rigid views that people are maintaining against all the evidence. I mean, I, I also find it a bit, uh, since we've been in lockdown and so on and people are dying, I, it's not really worth uh, harboring or uh, talking too much about uh, the COVID as a example of this paradigm shift, but I really think it would, it is such an example. I think if we if we really uh, try to understand the origin, not only the the way to control the disease, and that's a very important thing at the moment. Uh, you you were talking about ventilators earlier, and so on. All of that stuff is very very important to minimize uh, uh, the health uh, damage that's been done, minimize the the agony that's been caused, and the economic. Uh, problems as well. But I think by far the most important long-term uh, effect that this should have is an attempt to honestly understand where that virus came from. The story that it came from bats, via pangolins, and to humans doesn't really stack up. I've got a colleague who has been working on all of the sequences of the COVID-19 virus. He's taken sequences from Wuhan, from California, from the United States, and from Italy, I think. He's taken three, and they are all identical, uh, indicating that there was not much in the way of person-to-person -person spread. It all, all of these huge foci of uh, the disease essentially was fallout from the skies. Wow. Because uh, the news stories, obviously, I'm following closely, they're now claiming there are different mutational variants depending upon which nation is sampled, which patients are are uh, treated, et cetera, et cetera. You're saying that your data from sources you trust personally, that you know personally, 
are finding that the, the virus is genetically essentially the same all yeah, over the in, world. Uh, yeah, well, I think uh, I think I've got to uh, qualify that at the first moment of impact of the disease in any of these major centers, right? The isolates are almost uh, are pretty well identical. If you go down the line after people have been transmitting it one from another and so on, it is natural that the virus that comes out of a person and goes to another person would uh, would not be the identical virus. It would have acquired mutations. So you would see over a period of time, you would see the the mutations accumulating. But when you look at the virus in, in, in the first moment of its impact in the different places, it seems to be absolutely identical. But uh, it's the same story that uh, emerged about, I don't know, 20 years ago when the influenza virus of 1918-1919 was exhumed in, uh, is it Alaska, one of the frozen... I thought it might have been Greenland, but go ahead. Green. Okay. I think there was Alaska as well. There's an Alaska, Alaskan... Uh, this is the so-called Spanish flu, <clears throat> which is a total misnomer. It's total misnomer. It's called Spanish flu because the war, world was at war at the time, and the only guys who were reporting it was in Spain, and the Spanish royal family had gone down, gone down with it as well. I think mm. that's the reason. Anyway, the, the first uh, attacks of this influenza virus and the first isolates of the virus that were taken from uh, three different parts of the world, London, from uh, certainly from three totally different parts of the world, apparently had identical sequence sequences. So uh, again, it was the same sort of story. The now, wait, wait. According to what I've been tracking, obviously we had no medical technology or analytical technology in 1918 to know this. So no. there was there was a recent effort. When I say recent, last few years to dig up corpses of people who had died from the so-called Spanish flu and sampled directly with modern electron, electron microscopes, et cetera, et cetera, and, yeah. and other techniques, that virus to see what happened or, or what it looked like. And it's from those studies that you're yeah. saying that the initial appearances were all genetically the same, yeah. supporting yeah. the idea that it fell from outer space. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what in. I mean, I didn't do any of the research myself, but it's in the published uh, ah, got literature, it, got it. literature. But I mean, again, in the published literature, what I found very uh, exciting when I looked at this whole story about 20, 30 years ago was that the first outbreaks of of the lethal second wave of the Spanish flu, right? Right. In other words, out- it first appeared in the spring, then yeah. it died down, then it really yeah. reemerged in the fall so- and was vicious. That's right, yeah. It, and the first uh, outbreaks of that lethal second wave were in Boston and Bombay, India, on the same day. What? Exactly the same day. In 1918? 1918. There was no air travel. There was um, a very tedious way of going by ship and land and so on. It would take months, so, yeah. Uh, so I don't know what could have... I mean, there's no way of explaining that except in this... Uh, model of a fallout from the sky. So I think that's the the only way that you can explain it. And we, once it got to Boston again, I think I've tracked all the literature about how it spread from Boston outwards and so on. And it's sort of really very slow spread. Person to person spread is very, very slow. And it's also combined with a continuing infall. And then you have also these very rare, remarkable stories of isolated communities in Alaska, removed from civilization by is it thousands, I may say many hundreds of miles, uh, and in those days there was no transport uh, of any kind that connected these frozen wastelands of northern America to the bigger cities. Uh, so it is really surprising to find on two days in two days, some 60, 70% of the people in those places just got the disease and and perished. And there's no way it could have been human transfer people to people to people. No, absolutely. How can it be? I mean, wow. there's no, there's no, so, I mean, human to human transfer, of course, if viruses are infective. And so if one person is infected and comes close enough to another, then there's... Uh, uh, transmission route, 
And so that's the same thing is happening now in the COVID-19, uh, which makes the distancing measures, the social distancing measures and so on, uh, they make sense in that uh, regard. But um, there were also these instances, and both in the COVID situation and also in the 1918-1919 pandemic, where it is impossible to explain certain features uh, on the basis of uh, person-to-person spread. So there has to be a fallout from the skies, which is the cosmic virus, followed by uh, community spread or person-to-person spread. So that's what's going on now as it did in the past. Hmm. Okay, we got about four minutes to the top of the hour, and that's a hard break, so I don't want to get deeply immersed in this because it's fascinating. And miss my cues. I've done that a few times on this show. Um, so let me let me ask you an intermediate question. And when we come back at the top of the hour, we'll we'll dive into the COVID nineteen thing uh, from the beginning. Um, recently, in the last few years, there have been reports that the exterior of the International Space Station is coated with some kind of microorganisms or algae. Have you been following that controversy? Yeah, very, very much so. In fact, I've collaborated, uh, written papers with the principal uh, scientist involved in that, the Russian lady. Ah. And we've published a paper about six months ago. And there is absolutely no way in which those organisms could have been lofted from <laughs> uh, from the ground. I mean, the Support. space station is two hundred plus miles up, and there and there. I've seen people sure claiming, "Oh, it's just coming up from the earth somehow." Absolutely, and uh, in the team that involved myself and the principal Russian investigator was also Britain's leading expert on uh, stratospheric air currents. And all of us together wrote a paper saying that it's absolutely impossible to understand that in terms of uh, lofting material through 400 or 200 miles. Uh, So no way way where that is possible. And so I think, again, this is a clear sign of of things that are coming from deep space. It's a clear sign that the universe outside the Earth is just uh, uh, teeming with uh, viruses and bacteria of all kinds. And there's also, I think... And yet, kind of like Galileo and the Cardinals and the telescope, mainstream science, including all the space agencies all over the planet, resolutely are refusing, politically, to even acknowledge this as a possibility. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.